Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hi there, everybody. The break is back with more from the Betfred World Snooker Championship. It's the semi-finals, the best of 33 frames over three days. An exhausting, grueling stage of the tournament where only the steeliest survive. I'm Rachel Casey, and on this episode, we speak to the 2005 champion, Sean Murphy. We talk queuing kings, safety stars, with a little rest in between. And of course, we focus on the demands of the players at the semi-final stage. I'm joined by the 1986 world champion Joe Johnson and his fellow Eurosport commentator and tipster extraordinaire Dave Hendon. Joe, between sessions you've been sneaking off for a little practice. How how was that? Who's been saying that? I've got eyes everywhere. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I have actually. I've been going to um, Jason Francis's place in, in Reading. And it's a wonderful place, really is. And the, the room there, it's called the Stephen Hendry Room. It's uh, it's his own table and it's a wonderful... T- I just wish I had the game to give it some justice. What have you been sneaking off to do? Well, firstly, uh, does Stephen Hendry know you've been on his table? Because <laughs> on Twitter yesterday, he didn't seem so uh, so happy about All it. Right, okay. He just tweeted, Tough. what? <laughs> <laughs> There's no sneaking off to be done here, Rachel, as you know, they're long days. And to be honest, when, if I'm not commentating, I'm just watching it. I know that's quite sad in a way, but you want to know what's going on. And um, there's a lot going on, as we know, this, this year. There is so much going on. And the semi-finals, well, they are so long. So we're going to get into that. Just a quick reminder, it is Eurosport and Eurosport.co.uk for all the live snooker. As soon as you finish listening, to this podcast, I recommend you check out the latest on the two semi-finals. Now, we're going to get into the length of the semi-finals as well, because I know last year, Joe, Neil Foles said it was just too long, way too long. It was almost like off with his head afterwards. How could he suggest such a thing? Yeah, well, I, uh, well, I, the longer, the better. You know, I mean, I prefer the longer matches myself and, um, you know, best of 33 and 35, you know, it if you're going to be world champion, you need to be playing in them type of matches. For me, you know, everybody's got their own opinion, but I like that. I agree. I think Neil, Neil should have been arrested for those comments. Absolutely, <laughs> absolutely disgraceful. To be serious, the, the, I mean, it is a bizarre format, you know, having a three-day semi-final, but it's the same challenge that all the Crucible champions have faced, basically. The format was slightly different in the early years, but basically for 40 years, 
the format has been essentially the same. So it's the same test. And I think that snooker fans like that. I think if you were coming up with the format afresh now, you wouldn't have this. But it works. It creates the drama and the shifts in momentum. And, you know, it's a, it's a hard test for the players, which it should be in a World Championship. It's a real test and it can be exhausting and, as I said, gruelling. How do you prepare to play for, for, for such a long, drawn-out match, Joe? Well, I remember when I was playing uh, way, way, way back then. I know. <laughs> I tried my utmost to get away from all the hullabaloo of the of the crucible and 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 everything that was going on all around it because you can get so caught up in the excitement that it comes into your game and you know you, you start panicking well fortunately i didn't live too far away from the crucible so i just kept going home all the time and yeah, I didn't practice in between sessions, and um, I think I, I mentioned that on a podcast the other day. That you did, and you mentioned about sleeping in your own house and yeah. with your own wife. And yeah, I, I mean the thing is that as, yeah. as opposed to anyone else's wife. <laughs> well, yeah, well, <laughs> she might be listening now. Come on, <laughs> come on, tell me. Anyway, it was easy because you were so close and. What was your overriding memory of the semi-final? Because you did mention that excruciating back cyst as well yeah, on, on, yeah. on the recent episode. Yeah, well, that's not my main mem- memory. My main memory Goodness, was... Goodness, I hope not. Yeah, my main memory was playing in front of a brilliant crowd, all, all wanting me to win, or the majority wanted me to win, because most of them are from Yorkshire. But going down to the one-table setup was absolutely incredible because I think I'd been to the Crucible four, five, six times or something like that. I'm not sure how many times. I'm sure you'd you'd be able to find out. Never got past the first round. And when I got down to the semi-final stage, it was brilliant. It was absolutely... They call it magical. And believe me, Rachel, it really was. It was magical. A little bit haunting, I think, watching it this year. Um, your overall impression? Yeah, I think you notice the lack of audience more now. We're down to the one table because you don't have the screen that's that's blocking half of it off. Um, but, you know, we can do nothing about that. There's no doubt the pressure's still on the players. We've seen, you know, they're all feeling it, the two very close semi-finals at the moment. It's a shame, but, you know, the snooker is making up for it, I think, this year. I think it's been a terrific tournament and, you know, it's going to be a great last few days. Yeah, we've seen um, definitely the, the stress and Ronnie, who gave the table a fair old whack there during that last session before recording. Yeah, amazing, really. I mean, he's. I think Ronnie has gone out of his way to tell himself, and he's done it in interviews, you know, it doesn't really matter, I've got all these other interests, I'm here to enjoy myself. Of course it matters, you know, he wants to win it again, of course he does. He's put all this effort in, all the practice in, the hard work just to get here. He's in the semi-finals for the first time in six years. And in that session, things were going against him. He had Right at the start, he had a horrible kick on a black, that set the tone. He was having little bits of bad luck. Mr. Pink brought the fist down and properly brought it down, Joe. I mean, it must have hurt him. Well, I think he brought it down just a wee bit too hard, really, because... <laughs> there's, it, there's only ever one winner, we know that. It looked like a right whack to me. <laughs> absolutely. And it sounded, I mean, with the place being empty, it sounded maybe worse than what it was, but it's got to have, it's got to have hurt him, that. And it was, his, it was his right hand. So, you know, that's the one that holds the cue. So if he's done any damage there to the fingers... It could it could bear wouldn't bear thinking about really. Well, let's hope he's he's okay and he's yeah, he's, of course. He'll probably be a, a wee bit sore, I would say. Do you think it's well? We've we've always kind of looked back on obviously sleepless nights and players that go into one session as the front runner and suddenly they can see frames slip away. It's it's a very very tricky situation just to keep your mind on each session individually. Definitely, because you know it's one match, but it's divided into four sessions over three days, and then you've got mini sessions. It, there's a lot to think about, and actually the match is close nine. 
seven overnight. It's not like he's miles behind, but he he almost will feel that I think because he's lost six two. Nothing really went for him today. Even when he was in, he made a couple of breaks. It was awkward. He wasn't you know he wasn't playing with his normal flow. He'd slowed down. It was a hard day at the office, but he's still in the match. You know you can have one bad session here and respond. He's definitely still in the match. And today's guest on the break and a man who's been there three times in the semi-finals, of course, lifted the trophy in 2005, the champion of that year, Sean Murphy. And he joins us now. Sean, you're very welcome. How are you? I'm well. How are you? I'm good. I'm really good. How long does it feel since you lost your opening match? Because to all of us, it seems like about a year ago. Yeah, it does feel a bit like that. Yeah, I mean, of course... I was in a, a unique situation, really, in the build-up to the World Championships, and which led to me being in sort of isolation in a hotel in Sheffield for the best part of 10 days prior to my game. And it feels like about three months ago, I have to say. It's kind of, I've tried my best to forget it and move on, but uh, the World Championships has a way of taking over our lives for nearly three weeks. So, listen, I can't wait for this tournament to be over and uh, we can all move on. We had Chris Henry, your coach, on an earlier episode of The Break and he was saying like, you know, so many of us that it was obvious that you weren't looking yourself. You've had a, a tough old time. How are you doing now? Yeah, listen, you know, there's no getting around it and I, you know, I won't sugarcoat it for anyone. Obviously, I lost my best friend and, you know, sort of father figure really in Brandon Parker, you know, just a week or two before the World Championships and, you know, he, he has and will leave a massive hole in my life. And just, you know, when things happen and, you know, you would always go to the phone and want to ring that person or tell them a funny story or, you know, one of the kids does something funny and you want to share it with. Obviously, that's gone now. And, you know, it's very, very difficult to come to terms with. And I guess when you, you put snooker into that perspective, when you look at it through the prism of life and death, you know, it does become quite insignificant. So I was obviously very disappointed to lose my game. I was quite well prepared. I was looking forward to the championships. But I have to say, when Brandon passed away and I lost my match, I, you know, I couldn't get out of Sheffield quick enough. And, you know, listen, as a family, we're just trying to move on and deal with our grief and, you know, hopefully come back next season, you know, bigger and better. Yeah, no, I, I really did, you know, feel for you and, you know, our thoughts with you um, at this time, even, you know, moving on and, and rebuilding and, and, and regrouping. How far do you remove yourself from the championship once you're out? I mean, are you watching the snooker at all? Yeah, no, I have to say I'm a bit of a glutton for punishment. I mean, I'm still very deep down. I'm still that eight-year-old boy that started playing snooker with a wide-eyed passion and absolute fascination for the game. And, you know, you will find me up till all hours watching every single ball hit. You know, I do really still enjoy watching it. And, and I'm very lucky that, you know, obviously, you you know, you take wins and losses on the chin as a professional. You just move on from them. But I'm very lucky that that hasn't tainted my enjoyment of the game. And yeah, I, I've watched a lot of snooker in the last few days and looking forward to what's left of the tournament. And it seems like the, the semi-final just goes on and on and on. You know, being involved in a semi-final, how exhausting is that process? Yeah, it's completely sapping. You know, there's obviously the, the thrill of reaching the one-table setup, And it's a very fine line between enjoying that buzz of thinking you've achieved something great in getting there, but then actually, you know, refocusing and saying, well, I'm only now, you know, there's only four of us left and I'm only two wins away from being champion of the world. And I think back to my first semi-final in 2005, 
against Peter Ebden, I was just too wide-eyed. I was too naive. I was like a rabbit in the headlights. And it was a good session and a half, maybe two sessions, before I really got to grips with it and said, right, you know, we've actually got to play snooker here. You know, this isn't a procession. I lost the first session to Peter Ebden, 6-2. And so I was in trouble already. And um, as I say, it, it wasn't until at least halfway through the match that I actually managed to get a foothold and start playing snooker. Major surprise in 2005, the third qualifier to lift the trophy. Did you find that daunting at all? And, you know, for the likes of Anthony McGill, now that with all the experience behind you, what, what advice would you give to him, Sean? I mean, I, I have to be completely honest. I don't remember being daunted by it because I had completely zero expectation. You know, my career up to that point, you know, I wasn't Anthony McGill. You know, I wasn't Sir Kyron Wilson. Um, I wasn't a multiple ranking event winner. I was a 22-year-old clueless numpty who just, you know, went for lots of shots and they went in for that fortnight. Uh, I had no expectation at all. And literally, genuinely, just being in the tournament at that stage was a thrill. And uh, my coach and I, Steve, at the time, who's sadly no longer with us, you know, we just lived every single moment of it and enjoyed our time and just took what, took what the game, the snooker gods, chose to give us. And it was just an incredibly enjoyable two weeks. You said you were a clueless numpty back then. Has anything changed in that department? Well, I'm, I'm probably still a numpty. I'm not as clueless <laughs> as I was. Uh, but, uh, yeah, no, I mean, as a 22-year-old, you know, I thought I knew everything and, and was very gobby and a bit too vocal and said a few things I wish I could take back. And sure isn't every 22-year-old like that. You what, know, is, and, what is the, the, the one thing that you have said in, in the past that you, you really regret? I regret saying as a kid, uh, you know, a young pro on the scene, I said something along the lines of, um, you know, I want the conversation to be who was the greatest ever player, Steve Davis, Stephen Hendry, or Sean Murphy. Um, uh-huh. that, was a, that was a bit of a statement to come out with as a kid. Well, you always have to back yourself, Sean. You know that. Well. Just a very quick, <laughs> very quickly, um, just, you know, the fact that we're kind of embroiled in the, the semi-final at this stage. And, you know, you talk about being down to, to Peter Ebden. How difficult is it, say, being a front runner, you know, taking the lead into the next session and then on to the next session or maybe being down in a session? You know, where can your head fall off? Yeah, it can go anywhere. I mean, there's just landmines everywhere for players and you've got to watch out for them. You know, you can be, you can, you can lose the first session and feel as if you've just blown yourself out of the water and you can be ahead in a match and feel as if you're crest into the win and get caught in the end. You know, we've all experienced both sides of that coin. It's very, very dangerous. And at that point, it really becomes about how strong your team are. Who have you got around you? Who's whispering those sweet nothings into your ear? You know, when you're having your dinner at night, getting ready to play, going to bed. Who are these people that are in your corner? How experienced are they? That's, that's what it becomes about. Three good nights sleep needed. Did you ever have any trouble sleeping during the semi-final on those three nights? Yeah, no, I found it very hard. I, I remember certainly back in 2005, whilst I had no expectation, there was still the element of, wow, this is the one table. This is the semis. There's only four of us left. It was the last embassy championship in 2005. I knew that for the final, there would be the procession of former champions, all of that stuff going on. There was a lot to take in. And of course, 
I was completely inexperienced of that. I didn't, I didn't know the ropes at all. I didn't know where to stand, who to shake hands with, what to say, what not to say. I had no idea what I was doing unless I was potting balls. And so really, we just kind of tried to stick to that, uh, stick to what I knew, which wasn't as much as I thought I knew, as it turned out. But we just tried to stick to what we did know and uh, hope that that was going to be good enough. Finally, who do you think will be good enough to lift the trophy this year, Sean? Jeez, I mean, I mean, it could literally genuinely be any one of the four, couldn't it? It could be any one of them. <laughs> but who do you I think, think it, it will be? I think I, 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 I really think that Mark Selby is, is in prime position to add another championship to his roster this year. He's played O'Sullivan twice at the Crucible. He's beaten him both times. Um, if anyone can, you know, down the rocket, it is Mark Selby over the distance. He's done it before. And so he's got that in his locker. Mm-hmm. You would think the winner's going to come from that match with no disrespect to the other two. But listen, I was a complete surprise winner in 2005. There's no reason why Anthony McGill or Kyron Wilson couldn't upset the bookies and come through and lift that trophy themselves. Well, a belated happy birthday, Sean, um, from all of us here on the Eurosport podcast. Have you had the queue out? Have you been just spinning, trying to enjoy yourself, kind of pick yourself up again? No, as you know yourself, the the air bridges between Ireland and England don't exist. So I've been laying low and, and been keeping myself to myself. It'll be another week or so before I'm allowed, you know, back out into civilization, so to speak. And um, yeah, once that happens, it'll be, you know, let's look at the calendar and let's get ready for next season. Okay, lie low, enjoy the snooker on Eurosport and we'll catch up very soon. Take care, Sean. Thanks, guys. Take care. We're listening to Sean Murphy asking him about advice for for Anthony McGill. He doesn't come in here as a typical qualifier. He's already won two ranking titles. Yeah, he has. And he's been a top 16 player as well. Uh, I think now that he's got down to the semi-final stage, I mean, it was hairy scary to get there and full credit to him because he's done so well. But now he's got down to the semi-final stage, I think he's got every chance. You know, I'm I'm looking back at people like Terry Griffiths and and Sean Murphy and myself. You know, I was 151 to to win the championship as well. So it proves it can be done. Did anyone in your camp actually put money and back you? Uh, well, if they did, they didn't tell me anything about it. I'll tell you that. Uh, no, so I think this comes down to a, a lot that we talk about when we're on air and we say that people get the belief, you know, that it means so much when you've got the belief in the semi final and you think, well, I should be here. You know, this is what I've played for all my life. You know, I've watched it on TV, I've seen the one table set up, and now it's me here. I can do it. I can really do it. But we haven't mentioned the fact, Rachel, that I tipped him to reach the semis. Uh, will you come into that? <laughs> we can never peak too soon on this podcast. You know, I said at the top, tipster extraordinaire. But he has got just the incredible self-belief, has he? And he's always had it. He's the right sort of character for the Crucible. I mean, I mentioned what Alan has said. I keep saying it, but it's true. When he first qualified, Alan said, you know, he will win this tournament one day. He's uh, a bit of an introvert. That's a, that's a plus in snooker. He's just focusing on the table. He's in his own little world. Again, that's a massive advantage. He's done so well. And, and you're right, he doesn't feel like a normal qualifier. He's had a taste of it before he's won tournaments. Yeah, and if he doesn't win it this year, he'll be a challenger in the future. But what I if- saw you dragged up that, um, dragged it up, but uh, the article that, that was written about him many, many years ago, and he kind of was saying that, you know, 
I just don't even want to be playing snooker. And things have changed. But even then, he had spoken about, you know, some of the, the articles, the books he was reading, all about, you know, the mind and all of that and how much that has helped him. Yeah, when he was younger, he read a lot of those sort of books. And I think he's quite a deep thinker, um, which, again, I think can be a good thing. I think what you don't want to do is think too much about it. But it's interesting, before the match started, because he'd never even seen the one table in the flesh. He'd seen it on TV. He'd never watched it before, obviously never played in it. And he went out there with Alan McManus, that man again, and he was just giving him a few words of advice. He's played there three times before in the semis. And that must have helped. Just a chance to relax. A few words of wisdom from Alan must have been a help. And, of course, he did start really well in the first session. I uh, said Karen Wilson, actually, you know, at the beginning. And uh, he's got down to the semifinals. And, uh, again, like... like. Do we uh, have proof of this? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. it's, I can yeah. confirm. I can yeah. confirm. Well, well, the thing is that he's a little bit like McGill that one day is going to do it. And I, I do believe that McGill will win it one year, whether it's this year or not, I don't know. But, uh, but I feel the same way about Karen Wilson. He's going to win it one day. It's, it's just too good. It might even be 2020. Correct. Now, fellas, talking of deep thinkers and all of that, for the next few minutes, we're going to talk about this. Oh, I just need a cue action. I think if someone can give me a cue action, I'll be over the moon because my cue action is the world's worst. <laughs> if I could go and buy Neil Robertson's cue action... I'd, I'd fancy winning tournaments, you know what I mean? And for the greatest player of all time to say that, I'm like, really, Ronnie? <laughs> it seems like a bit of an overreaction. Obviously, he beat Mark Williams. That was after the Williams victory. It was a bit of a scramble. You know, the last frame was on a respot. And I suppose when you know how good you can be, if you don't quite meet that level, the tendency is then to sort of criticise yourself. But come on, I mean, this cue action, it's got to be the best ever, hasn't it? Well, I wouldn't say the best ever, but it's a good cue action. And uh, I agree with him that Neil Robertson's action is fantastic. But for Ronnie O'Sullivan to say my action's terrible, it's, he doesn't he bear thinking about it. It's like, and, and saying that I might even win tournaments <laughs> if I had a cue action, ridiculous. Well, isn't he's it? the joker in the back sometimes, isn't he? Because he is the greatest player in my mind that has, yeah, that has ever lifted a you. Yeah, me you too. said not the best. Who is the best? Well, there's various people that have got good cue actions. I mean, I loved um, Stephen Hendry's action. That was great. Neil Robertson, we've mentioned. You know, um, Steve Davis, obviously, great action. Um, Higgins, John Higgins, not Alex, John Higgins. Uh, there's quite a few, and Anthony Hamilton's got a great long flowing action. Mm. Uh, yeah, I think you, you really do need a good cue action to survive longevity you know and that that's a that's a secret really with Ronnie O'Sullivan he's been going so long his his action must be good mustn't it well <laughs> it definitely is and you've mentioned a, a few players you know that are still playing the game in the past I think Stephen Lee who's obviously banned yep. from the sport his cue action was was always applauded yep. as being very good you know that that might be for sale but uh, Dave we've come up with a bit of a list I'll give you three the, the all-time best cue action well I think uh, sort of going back Steve Davis definitely. I think if you watch sort of snooker before he came along, you know it, it doesn't kind of measure up to today, maybe. But he he followed the the Joe Davis coaching method, didn't he? And, and his action was one that then people copied. Obviously Stephen Hendry as well. He came along um, and raised the bar. And I think right now I'd say Sean Murphy actually. I think Sean Murphy yeah. he always look co- he always yeah. looks confident in his cue action, doesn't he? Yeah, absolutely. I forgot to mention. There's got to be lots more that we haven't mentioned. You know, there's probably somebody up there that's got the best one. But, uh, you know, I can't think of anybody right now better than people that we've mentioned, like Sean Murphy. Fantastic action. He does the same thing every time he addresses the cue ball. 
You can't fault him for it. It's beautiful action. OK, right. Well, I said there'll be a little bit of a rest in between some of our, our technical analysis and Kyron Wilson, a fabulous rest player. We've seen that in the semi-finals, you know, how good he is with the, the rest. Is he the best around at the minute? Well, it's funny because today uh, Will Snooker Tour sort of tweeted that he was and Sean Murphy, within about five seconds, got onto them and said, hang on, I'm pretty good with the rest as well. It's probably between those two, actually, in, in the current game. It's breaking news if Kyron misses with the rest. It really is. He's, for, some, for whatever reason, he's yep. brilliant at it. But I think in general, Joe, yeah. the top players now, they're all good with it, aren't yeah. they? Yeah, well, I was going to say that. Yeah, They are really good with the rest of the players that you've mentioned. But there's there's a, a multitude of players with the rest. I mean, Jimmy White, for example, you know... He was great in our era. And just news, he's still very good with the rest, Joe. And even now. As you'll find uh, out next exactly. week. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I hope not. <laughs> so, yeah, even now, Jimmy is fantastic with the rest. And you, you can't fault him, you know, but there's so many. I mean, look at Mark Selby. I've been watching him and I haven't seen him miss with the rest. I, I, he has done, but, you know, I Here's, my, here's my theory on why. I think in the modern era... All these uh, players have started as kids playing on full-size tables They've from a very young age. And, of course, they're small and they need to use the rest from a young age. I saw Judd Trump win the national under-15 title when he was 10 and he was playing every other shot using the rest. But, of course, you get used to it, don't you? <laughs> yeah. yeah, except to say that when, in my era, when I was playing in the local billiard halls, we used to climb on the table. We never used the rest. Never. <laughs> That's frowned upon these days, Joe, isn't it? <laughs> Very true. But there are players out there that loathe to use it. Well, Matthew Stevens uh, is the one. He actually can use the rest yes, when, he, when, he, he when he uses it, but he does everything in his power to avoid it. For whatever reason, whether it's a mental thing or not, he just doesn't want to use it. Well, I think the worst one, and I don't think he'll like me for it's saying okay, this. It's OK, name and shame. It's, it's got to be Tony Drago. Has to be Tony Drago, who is possibly the worst player with the rest. <laughs> OK, and uh, well, Ronnie just plays left-handed. <laughs> yeah. He is actually really good with the rest, but we see him t- kind of just switching. Um, and we're going to switch to um, safety, finally, on, on, on this episode. The greatest safety player in the game. A lot of people will talk about Mark Selby, but there are so many. Who just ties players in knots? The player that I'm always fascinated by, if it goes tactical, is John Higgins. I think you can. it's almost a masterclass when he's playing because he always seems to know what the right shot is and will try and play it, sometimes not successfully. But he, for me, would be, at the moment of all the players playing, the best safety player. Yeah, there's some great safety players about nowadays. I mean, there was a few in my day, but nowadays everybody seems to be able to play the safety game. But John Higgins, yeah, right up there with the absolute best of all time because it's not just playing safe it's it's getting in, into a place where it's so difficult for your opponent Mark Selby's a master at it as well and let's not forget that you know Ronnie O'Sullivan's a great safety player it's just a matter of has he got the great patience that the other players have got and that's kind of what it, it, it really is, isn't it? It's, it's patience. And for many years, Judd Trump, you know, he, it took him a bit of time just to kind of rein it all back because he's such a flashy, he's just a fantastic player to watch. But it was the all-round game that we've seen Judd really climb to the top. Definitely. He's learnt it um, really from sort of early defeats he had. He realised he had to 
bring that into his game. Obviously, he's a great potter, great builder. He's, he's a very clever player, I think, Trump. He sort of sees the whole table. Same with Neil Robertson, you know, when he started. He was taking everything on. Even if it didn't go, he'd be taking it on. Um, but they learn. You learn as you play, and you, you realise you need, you know, every facet of the game to be a top player. Yeah, uh, but the, the most important thing with that is not to go overboard with the safety. When you're such a natural player like Judd Trump and, and Neil Robertson, it's easy to get bogged down with safety play and, and forget about the attacking play that you've got. I think Trump's got that now. He, he knows when to attack and when to defend. I'm not so sure about Neil Robertson. I think he fancies himself as a safety player when it's his strength is attacking. Mm-hmm. You're great with this best and worst Joe, yeah. who's the worst safety player out there? Uh, well, I'd probably put myself up there. <laughs> uh, I, don't, I don't think there is one, Rachel, really, to be, tell you the truth. I mean, they're all great safety players. Well, a player who might have fallen into that category maybe a couple of years ago was Sean Murphy. By his own admission, he said, you know, I'm not a great safety player, but we were at the Welsh Open, which he won in fine style. Uh, this year and his safety he game it. actually his safety game in that tournament yeah. was excellent and I think that's something he's obviously worked on to you know to, to improve yeah I agree and Joe as a player what's the, the worst time you were sort of dragged down by safety oh. how long have you got have you got a book <laughs> I'm telling you the safety player in my day it was all safety play and there's so many players that could stop a natural play from playing. Ask Jimmy White, you know, I mean, he, he, people just used to go out of the way to be slow against him and, and stop him playing. And people certainly had my number. Terry Griffiths, for example, Dennis Taylor, Steve Davis, Eddie Child. And, you know, they, these were all great safety players that had patience, but it wasn't just safety. It was walking around the table two or three times when we all knew what shot they were going to play. But get on with it, man. Get on with it. But they wouldn't. They wouldn't. Well, sadly, we haven't got any more time to talk safety or, or anything else. There's so much that we could have tried to squeeze into this, this episode. Guys, you're still going. You're definitely going with the tips. Yeah. Uh, Mark Selby is still in the tournament, as far as I know. So, yeah, I'm uh, quietly confident. Yeah. Yeah. Karen Wilson's still there. Great, and you're going to sneak back to the commentary box, I'm afraid. Looking forward to it. I mean, they're both set up so well, aren't they, these semi-finals? And, you know, I think the final is guaranteed to be great. And and look at that, 2-6-2 two, two wins. You know, it, it, McGill wins 6-2 and then Karen Wilson wins 6-2. So, as David said, it's, it's set up so brilliantly. Can't Absolutely, wait. and they'll be tossing and turning, whether they're leading or trailing. Guys, as ever, a great pleasure. Thank you so much. I hope you all enjoyed this episode of The Break. Please subscribe, rate and review the podcast to make us very, very happy. And watch the live snooker from The Crucible on Eurosport and eurosport.co.uk. We'll be back for more in a couple of days' time. But until then, from Joe, Dave and myself, it's goodbye. 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 Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.